Let's say it together. Church of Our Savior exists to help people wherever they are on their spiritual journey to live into a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So this sermon series, The Body of Christ, will look at the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, and then the hands and feet of Christ. The body of Christ. But we know that the body of Christ is really what we often call the church, right? So we want to look at these elements of Christ and uh, discuss, figure out, discern how we want uh, and how we are led to embody these elements as the body of Christ. Uh, So today, the heart of Christ. I wonder, does anybody here know the name Karl Barth? You know that name? He was a, a Protestant Swiss theologian before, during, and after World War II. So you were probably just reading him last night, I would guess. Um, he actually was a, he was a towering uh, theological figure whose work went way past academia into the mainstream. Uh, he was called by Pope Pius XII back then uh, the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. You know, Thomas Aquinas was a doctor of the church in the 1200s, you know, 800 years before Pretty amazing for the Catholic Pope to call the Protestant theologian the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Karl Barth was famous for his uh, landmark commentary on the Epistle to the Romans and a five-volume systematic theology called Church Dogmatics. The volumes, each of those five volumes were so thick, it actually takes 14 books to publish all five volumes. Countless PhDs have been earned by people studying the work and theology of Karl Barth. You get a sense of who Karl Barth, sort of the Mac... So in 1962, uh, towards the end of his life and his career, someone asked him, uh, Dr. Bart, how would you summarize the essence of the millions of words that you have published? And he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) See, the heart of Christ is love. The heart of Christ is love. Jesus, as the Son of God, had perfect love for God the Father. And as such, he therefore reflected that perfect love uh, to neighbor, which includes you and me. The heart of Christ is love. But now that might sound a little bit trite, you know, just a little pithy. Uh, So we want to be careful. We want to be purposeful when we consider the love of Jesus. uh, Because love to us means a lot of things, doesn't it? And we love pizza, you know, and we, we love our pets, and we love images on Facebook, and we uh, love the Jags most of the time, and we, uh, we love our family. And so love to us means a lot of different things. And we want to be sure not to reduce the love of Jesus to something that it is not, something less than it is. And for my money, the heart of Christ is articulated clearly in our two passages this morning. And we see in these passages that the heart of Christ is totally opposite of what we expect. Totally opposite of the way the world works. Totally opposite of the way we expect religion to work. So we're going to start with the Gospel of Matthew. Then we'll touch briefly on 1 John and finish with a couple ideas about how we as the body of Christ can embody and share the heart of Christ. So from Matthew, our passage, gospel passage, starts with Jesus praying. 
He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. You've revealed them to infants. See, God is a vast, infinite, imponderable ocean whose depths can never be fully explored, but He can be fully known by even a little child. Pretty amazing. This is why Karl Barth, who was both wise and intelligent, profoundly so. He, he could have spent hours answering the question about summarizing his work, but he answered instead with a simple children's refrain. Jesus loves me. This I know. So, you know, we want, uh, rather, to work our way up, don't we? We want to sort of treat our faith like a corporate ladder. We want to prove our worth, outshine the others, receive our reward, our recognition, our merit badges. And yet Jesus is saying it doesn't work like that. Jesus has not come for those who are intent on proving their worth. Jesus has come for those who know they can't. There was a homeless fellow that I uh, knew in another uh, city that I lived in, and I, um, you know, I saw him from time to time. I bought him lunch a couple times. One day I thought that uh, I would ask him about where he stood with the Lord. Had, would he go to church? And he said, you know, maybe one day, but I, I can't go like this. I could never, let, I could never go in like this. I gotta, I, I'd have to clean up my act first. I don't think he really had any intent to clean up his act, but, but that, was, uh, that was what he said. I could never go in. I've got to clean up my act. And it's always stuck with me because I think, we all think that. I mean, we all think that I can't, and that's what we have to do. That's the way religion works. But the money line in Jesus' passage today, and maybe, I mean, arguably in all of Scripture, is come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I mean, I think that's what Jesus would say to that man. And it's certainly what he says to you and me. See, Christianity is not a curriculum. It is an invitation. Christianity is not at its heart a religion, but a relationship. Not for the affirmation of the righteous and the praise of the pious, but for the healing of the broken. For rest for the weary and for grace for those who need forgiveness. The default message of our culture and the default really of our own fallen hearts is usually to try to outrun the weariness, isn't it? To beef up our burden-carrying muscles, to self-help and bootstrap our way to success, and to do anything, anything other than to admit our faults and our weaknesses, to bear our vulnerabilities and our shortcomings and our shame. But Jesus has not come for those intent on proving their worth, but for those who know that they can't. I have a dear friend who uh, in high school was a champion swimmer, and he was the student body president, and he was a straight A student at one of the very best schools in his whole state. And oh, by the way, he was the president of his church youth group, and he went on to a top-tier university where he graduated in three years. And in that final year, he got a two-year degree, a Master's of Education. Uh, he was a young man of enormous talent, intelligence, and ambition. 
He was a model, really, of all that was admired and sought after by those around him. And after earning his master's degree, he took a job teaching it in one of the very toughest inner-city schools in Charlotte with every expectation that he was going to be one of those inspiring turnaround teachers. And with all the humility that he could muster, he dreamed of the Hollywood movie that was going to inspire, not for himself, but it was going to inspire millions. Um, And so at 22 or 23 years old, his nervous breakdown started with short-term memory loss. But he pressed on, because that's all he knew how to do, was to keep pressing. And then he lost the ability to speak. His brain just literally unplugged for a little while. So he had to quit his job. It was really the first time he'd ever failed at anything. He, regained, he began to regain his faculties, and, and he, he, um, after a while he went to see his pastor. And his pastor said to him, after listening and sitting down with him, he said to him, you do not understand the gospel. He said, the gospel is not try harder, get better, Fulfill your potential. The gospel is rest. See, Jesus has done it all. Jesus is your worth. Jesus is your rest. What my friend found out was that though he was religious, his identity, his sense of who he was, was completely defined by what he achieved. And when he tried to achieve, but failed, he just lost completely his sense of who he was. His talent, his intelligence, his drive had become functional saviors for him. And they had actually become a hindrance to his relationship with Christ. The failure and the loss of those self-made saviors left a hole in his identity. And that hole became the door through which Jesus could finally walk. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friend found that Jesus has come to give inexhaustible grace to an exhausted world. Where are you exhausted? Where are you not exhausted? Maybe it's the functional saviors in your own life, whatever they may be, that are running you ragged and keeping you from relying on Christ alone. Maybe it's the Maybe it's grief that has you exhausted. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's your own expectations of yourself. Maybe it's the barking of someone else's expectations in your head or the vicarious expectations you have for your children. Whatever it is, can that hole in your life be the door that Jesus walks through? You know, Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all who can thrive on four hours of sleep and never let any balls drop, right? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The heart of Christ is love for you 
at your worst. Total, unmitigated, unblushing acceptance of you in the weary and heavy laden places where you know you don't deserve it. And you might say, well, how can that be? How can a perfect God love people in their imperfect places? Don't I have to clean up my act? Let's take a look at our passage from 1 John, where John writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, on the cross, Jesus took our worst and gave us His best. Jesus took our brokenness and gave us His wholeness. He took the weariness and the heavy ladenness and gave us His rest. He took our exhaustion and gave us His exuberance. He took our separation from the Father and gave us His union with the Father. He took our death and He gave us His life. Not that we loved God, Not that we got our act together, got ourselves spruced up, muscled our way through our weariness. Not that we proved our worthiness or made straight A's for Jesus. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for all our sins. That's the gospel. It's the good news. That is the heart of Christ. So how do we, as the body of Christ, embody and share the heart of Christ? Because you know, the the gospel message should create a gospel culture, shouldn't it? The gospel message should create a gospel church that embodies and reflects and shares the gospel message. So what does that look like? Well, again, from 1 John, Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. That's what John says. Since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. And I'd say, you know, as a church, we're pretty good at that. We always hear from newcomers that we are really warm and welcoming, and we throw a pretty good party. about to throw one after the service. Let's press just a little further. Because, you know, given the context, Jesus, uh, John isn't only talking about being nice to all your friends. Anybody can be nice to their friends. Not to be a Christian, to be nice to your friends. But what John is talking about can only be done in the power of the Spirit by those who have received grace and love at their worst. He's talking about unmitigated, unblushing acceptance for those who do not deserve it. Radical sacrificial love for those who are hard to love, for those who have wronged us, for those who seem to have no love for us, for those who vote differently than us, for those who make us feel uncomfortable to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to turn the other cheek. The kind of love that John is talking about is not mere kindness. As important as kindness is, he's talking about death and resurrection. And it ain't easy. I mean, it costs God his life. 
There, it is not the least bit instinctive for us. There is not a cell in your body that thinks, you know what I ought to do is I ought to love my enemies. Somebody hits me in the face, I ought to turn my cheek and let them hit it again. We don't do that. But how we treat others is the proving ground about what we believe and how we believe we have made our way to God. If we believe that we are saved by our good works and our kindness and how good we are, then when someone else is not that good, then we can look down on them. Pass judgment on them. If we believe amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that I have been loved at my worst, then when we see someone's worst, we can meet them right there and love them in that spot. We love because He first loved us. You know, the church... It can be a messy place. It can be wonderful, but messy sometimes. You know why that is? Because we've got people in there. <laughs> you know, we talk about the church as a family. A lot of times family can get sideways, can it? The late theologian Francis Schaeffer said this. True The late theologian Francis Schaeffer said this. True Christianity produces beauty as well as truth. If we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. The gospel message must create gospel culture. And is there anything that our world needs more right now? Is there any more radical alternative to our cultural moment than to bless those who curse us, than to welcome those with whom we disagree, than to take the time to mourn with those who mourn? This is the body of Christ. And the heart of Christ has been given to us to share. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is ours to proclaim in thought, word, and deed, Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen.